Yes, I know. These are coming fast and furious. That, that would be a great name for a movie franchise, fast and furious. I'll have to look into that. Yes, these are coming fast and furious because it's it's we're already up to episode five, which is we're about halfway through, believe it or not, episode five. And I am finding this exhilarating. I am having a ball doing it. Believe me, the prep work was <laughs> exhausting, but now putting this all together and, and, and you know, you got all the makings of the salad and now you're finally putting it all together and that's fun. All the prep work, that kind of stinks, but putting it all together is fun and that's what we're doing now. So we're up to episode five and we left off after hearing from David Lamb and our friend Saul Elkin and Terry Doran and of course, Tony Chase all along the way. And we left all of that in 1978. And we are still in 1978. Because friends, that was a busy year. A lot of stuff going on. And I, I should tell you that I call it a history of Buffalo Theater because it's not the history. I mean, this is by no means to be considered complete. As a matter of fact, I, I the script I'm using that I wrote, I've dubbed it a, a thoroughly incomplete complete history. And don't get me wrong, I'm trying to be as complete as possible, but I know that I am, well, always, always making mistakes, so why should this be any different? So if you catch me in any mistakes, please feel free to write to me at rltpoffroad at gmail.com and explain in as much detail as you can what mistakes were made, and I'll try to correct them. I won't try to correct them, I will correct them both on the script and later on in a podcast in the future. Maybe I'll put together all the mistakes and explain to you where I went wrong and how they need to be fixed. Oh, and there's my cue, the ticking clock that says stop babbling and get going. And this is our Buffalo history theme music that will carry us through every episode. And also it will serve to be like a, a separator, a divider, when we know that we've gone back to the timeline after some audio inserts of interviews. So let's get started. So our last episode, episode four, ended with a tribute to Lorna Hill and a discussion about how she formed Ujima Theater and so on with Sarah Norat Phillips in 1978. Not so coincidentally, also in 1978, we will begin this episode with John Samazi, who through Melick and Mime, his company, he creates the first African-American dinner theater in Buffalo, upstairs at a Santora's restaurant near the Central Terminal neighborhood. Opening with the all-black cast of Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, and followed by a mixed cast in Guys and Dolls. However, after its third production, The Owl and the Pussycat, it was shut down for lack of public support. And now, also in 1978, quite a momentous year, Gary Fisher Dawson founds the Buffalo Entertainment Theater at the Franklin Street Theater, which was now the Buffalo Chop House, most of you know it as. It later becomes the Buffalo Ensemble Theater in the Jackson Building, which was later demolished for a Hampton Inn. 
Gary Fisher Dawson, unfortunately, has also passed away. So I spoke to one of the four artistic directors for the Buffalo Entertainment and then Buffalo Ensemble Theater. There was first Gary Fisher Dawson, and then Bob Litzenberger, and then Bob Waterhouse, and then the late, dearly lamented Tim White. Here's Bob Waterhouse to tell us what little he remembers about Gary Fisher Dawson. He was very bold, he was very hard-nosed, and he was probably, even by the standards of our current theater scene, quite daring. So I think that he had in him, and I might be wrong about this, but I think he had in him a lot of the ideas that were going around in the 1960s. So a much more experimental approach and quite a learned experimental approach. I want to say that he knew something about physical theater, but I might be superimposing. So Gary Fisher Dawson was the founder of the BET. His name, by the way, was Gary Fisher. And then he married someone named Stiller Dawson, and she became Stiller Dawson Fisher, so he became Gary Fisher Dawson. How about Bob Litzenberger? After Gary moved on, tell us something about Bob Litzenberger. Robert Litzenberger. I knew him very, very well. I mean, he was extremely good to me. He was very, very good to me. Very, very supportive. A very loving man. He did a lot of work of theater and prisons. So he had that kind of background. And again, he was very, had a lot of the 1960s in him. And there was a lot of very, I mean, Bob Litzenberger, he loved his philosophy. And he was very into existentialism and so on. I mean, he worked in prisons, for God's sake, you know. But there was a lot of thinking and talking and workshops and developing statements and models and drafts and documents and think tanks were going on. Before I was involved, that was kind of the, the atmosphere. So then, how does Bob Waterhouse become the successor to Robert Litzenberger as the AD, Artistic Director of BET? And when I got involved, I did a few shows on a freelance basis for the organization. And then, you know, I get getting drawn in. So it went like this. It went Gary, Bob Litzenberger, and then me, because he, he dragged me into it. And then he said to me, why don't you become artistic director? And I, Bob Litzenberger, will be the executive director, the managing director. And that's how we ran things for a while. So I was working for them 87, 88. And then I took over in 1989. And then I left in 1993 or four. So apparently the Buffalo Ensemble Theater, first the Buffalo Entertainment Theater, performed at the Damon College where Musical Fair now performs. And then they moved to the Franklin Street Theater, now the Buffalo Chop House, and then they moved to the Jackson Building. Here's what Bob has to say about that. It was kind of wandering around. The company was sort of wandering around and performing where it could, a lot of things in, in the Damon Little Theater. They 
went to the Jackson building and used that as their administrative base and rehearsed there and held staged readings there, that sort of thing. And then they produced main stage shows where they could and where they could included for a season or a couple of seasons, the Damon College Little Theatre. But then he did a production of um, Ghosts, and that, I think, was one of the first productions in the Jackson Building. And then people got the thought, you know what, screw it. Let's just produce here. And Bob put in those rises, and that room where you and I did Voyage Around a Father that building became the major space for many, many seasons. And some really, really, really good work was done in there. And I want you to keep in mind when you hear about the Jackson building that this performance space was like the fifth floor or sixth floor, fifth or sixth of the Jackson building. Very tiny space. And then suddenly... It was no longer the Buffalo Entertainment Theater. It was the Buffalo Ensemble Theater. So I said to Bob, why did this happen? In those days, and I even remember Gavin Cameron hyphen Webb complaining about this, because it used to be that in the yellow pages, you would look under theaters and it would be all movie theaters. And mixed in with those movie theaters would be the one or two live theaters that were actually performing. And Gavin Cameron Webb, when he was at Studio Arena, made that same observation that people would call Studio Arena looking for a movie theater box office. Where have you seen a movie theater with the word ensemble in it? That's a word that's only used in theater and in dance. So it happened with the change to Gary Dawson Fisher or Gary Fisher Dawson to Bob Litzenberger. There was a revised mission that went with it and there was an artistic philosophy behind it. And it was very much an ensemble idea. It was a small group of very devoted talent, all of them local, who were dedicated to new work It was an annual festival of three new plays, but also a mission to rediscover the classics. And for those of you kids out there who don't know what the Yellow Pages were, the phone companies, the landline companies, used to put out a a book. It was about six inches thick, and it was made of very flimsy paper. And it was the white pages were all the residential listings, and the Yellow Pages were all the business listings, and that's where you would go to look something up like a movie theater, to find out what shows were playing and what time the shows were and so on and so forth. So they changed the Buffalo Ensemble Theater because Buffalo Entertainment Theater was being mistaken for a movie house. Finally, from Bob Waterhouse, I asked him for some thoughts about Tim White and the demise of BET. No, I left Buffalo. I got a job in Pennsylvania, and then I moved to Atlanta, and then I was messing around in England for a bit. So that's when I was gone for five years. By going from Gary to Tim, we're skipping some amazing work. I mean, we're skipping about 10 years of work, and a lot of it with Tim himself. Tim got tired. He got really, really tired. I think this was John Osborne who said this. Every... Theatre takes on the personality of its artistic director. And so the strain 
of trying to run the organization and struggle to stay alive, I think, really took its toll on him. So I think the organization took on those strains. And for those of you who don't know Tim White, who did not know Tim White, I really don't feel like it's my job to tell you anything about his personal life. But Tim had some major health problems, and he fought them for a long, long time until he finally passed away. Here are some final words from Tony Chase about Gary Fisher Dawson and BET. Well, I knew him very early on in, when, when he was in the place that, that Theater Views took over that's now the Chop House. Serious aspirations at the Buffalo Ensemble Theater, but very serious uh, of purpose. And uh, that theater, the Buffalo um, First Entertainment, then Ensemble Theater, which was interestingly in that wave of small theaters like the aspirations David Lamb had for the Cavanoke, but without that base of support. Eventually, they were on the fifth floor of the Jackson Building and doing very, very beautiful work and with a very serious and now old-fashioned repertoire because they really looked very much to the modern drama and you would see Ibsen, you'd, you'd, you'd see Jean Cocteau, you'd see um, just the, the great masters of modern drama at, at that theater and then they would venture into a certain very serious niche of the contemporary repertoire where they did radio play a number of times. They did Lenny. They would um, do forays into activist serious drama, the descendants of Eugene O'Neill, and very non-commercial. Quality theater locally produced for local artists to do. And now some additional comments from our friend Saul Elkin. Because in 1978, UB leases the previous town casino building the building that had been used by Studio Arena before it moved across the street to the modern Palace Burlesque Theater, which closed down. But now UB leases the building, the former town casino, for continued programming from the drama department and renames it the Center for Theater Research. And later this was shortened to the Center Theater. Here's Saul to tell us about it. At that point, the UB Theater Department was located on the Main Street campus, and there was no performance space. And along came that theater, and it occurred to me that that could be our performance space. We, a lot of our work was being funded mostly by the university, but partly by a private trust called the Pfeiffer Trust. Sidney Pfeiffer had a will in which he left a sum of money to the UB Theater Department to use as they would. And so I had, each year, I had a a sum of money from the Pfeiffer Trust, which I could use however I wanted to use it. And originally I used it to create the Center for Theater Research in that theater, in that building. And so the town casino became the Pfeiffer Theater. My intention was that the UB Theater Department would produce their plays in that space, and they did. And that separate from that, there would be this separate unit, the Center for Theater Research, and the Pfeiffer Trust would give me wherewithal to hire a few people, fellows of the Center for Theater Research, they were called, and they would produce plays and they would also teach. So it, it expanded the faculty of the department by these new fellows who were really actors who were now being supported. My sense was that the UB Theater Department, I was in the chair, would use it as, a, as their principal performance space. And we did a number of productions there. And that in addition to that, this group of Pfeiffer Fellows would also produce plays in a more professional way, also using students. 
I realized, of course, that the university was picking up the maintenance costs for the building, electricity and uh, whatever else, whatever other costs there were. And uh, the Center for Theater Research, we were, you know, the, the lucky recipients of the help of the university. But apparently a decision was made that they, would, they could no longer do that. So they sold the building. So it seems as if UB once again decided that uh, enough was enough. And they pulled out of the Center Theater, later the Pfeiffer Theater. But UB has had, I believe, a very strong influence on Buffalo Theater. I asked Saul about this. I do think that the UB Theater Department played an enormous role. The people involved, the people on the faculty, who also doubled as, as professionals in the community. The fact that a parade of students came out of the department that became part of the Buffalo Theater scene. I think that was very true then. I, I think it's less true now, to be honest. I think that there's, you know, as you say, there are other there are other SUNY schools, and Fredonia has produced interesting people, and Brockport has, and Buff State has. But there was a time when, when I think the UB Theater Department was the source of a, a good deal of the theater energy in Buffalo. The source of a good deal of the theater energy in Buffalo. I think that's putting it mildly. Here's Tony Chase on the same subject. The Department of Theater and Dance, particularly when they were on the Main Street campus, had a very close connection. Even in the early year of the Arties, you will look and see that those productions at the Pfeiffer were eligible so that things like their production of Fen was eligible for Arties in those days. The Arties were, were scheduled around UB's academic calendar. And one of the benefits of the theater community here has been that every year, a new generation of young theater artists comes out of these schools, comes out of UB, NU, Buff State, Fredonia, primarily. There is an unlimited supply, and periodically they, looking at what their predecessors have done, you get Mercury Fur, you know, this, this production company that comes out of a bunch of kids out of college saying, well, if they're not going to give us the opportunities to do what we want to do, we'll do it ourselves. This endless, endless supply of theater artists being churned out by these colleges eager to do something and not knowing what to do. Well, they may not know what to do when they first graduate, but I think history has shown us and the rest of this timeline will prove that they figure it out pretty quickly. So now let's continue on the timeline with another momentous event. In 1980, Neil Raddus founds the Buffalo Theater Collective. And in March of that year, he performs the first production in the front cabaret space at UB's Center for Theater Research, again, formerly the Town Casino. And if you've been in the Town Ballroom as it exists today, you know there's a little room off to the right as soon as you enter. That was the cabaret space in which Neil Radis's Buffalo Theater Collective performed. Here's Neil to talk about it. So in September 1980, I invited some of my favorite theater artists uh, to join me at the Center Theater, which I was managing as part of my role with the theater department, uh, to found a new company. For the next few months, we spent time planning and creating an organizational structure. That group included Jim Whiting, Amy Hoffman, Lynn Curds, Ilfermato, Michael Ehrenreich, and my wife at the time, Joyce, and others. We served as our own board of directors, an artist-managed company, then called the Buffalo Theater Collective. 
which later became Alleyway Theater. And we touched on this a little earlier, about why the Buffalo Theater Collective had to become the company that was then in residence at the Alleyway Theater. But here's Neil to tell you a little more about it. Buffalo Theater Collective was originally intent on functioning as a collective in the sense that the members were going to use the company as a way to develop a wide range of theater skills. Actors were going to take on stints as stage manager or public relations director or fundraiser or even producer. And stage managers and other offstage people were going to try a bit of acting. In short, it was to be an opportunity for everyone to gain as much experience in all areas as possible while we proceeded to put up complete seasons of theater. But as things proceeded, I discovered that two artistic ambitions were beginning to clash. A strong acting corps was developing, and we were trying to offer roles to each member throughout the season. However, at the same time, we started producing new plays and musicals, and as more new scripts came along, it became apparent that selecting a season based on actors in the company versus casting based on the needs of new plays was going to present an insurmountable challenge. Alleyway's mission of presenting new plays took precedence. So there you have it. Alleyway's mission of presenting new plays took precedence. Let's continue on in the timeline. We are up to 1980. Melody Fair. Remember I told you about Melody Fair before? It was a great big round circus tent out there in Tonawanda that burned to the ground. Well, after it was rebuilt into a solid, round building, theater in the round, it enjoyed much success, but then it was sold to the Bersani brothers in 1980, and uh, they didn't have quite as much success because it closed three years later. Also in 1980, John Fantini, Elaine Massolino, who you'll hear more about her when we talk to John Samazzi about his dinner theater company, and Maggie Hillegas form GEM, J-E-M, Productions, and they perform at various venues around town, including the Packet Inn, the Pfeiffer, and the Lancaster Opera House. They are among the first of the very, very small groups that do dinner theater and take it around to various locations. Also in 1980, the Playhouse. Irv Weinstein, who was a revered Buffalo newscaster, and his wife, Elaine, co-owned the 124-seat downtown Buffalo Theater right on Main Street with Bryna and Joe Weiss. Here's Tony Chase to tell us a little bit about Bryna and life at the Playhouse. I saw the theater world here through gauze, though I did briefly stage manage for Bryna Weiss down at the Playhouse, which coasted a lot on the name Irv Weinstein, which is exactly why he pulled out, that there was a lot on him for that theater. She was quite a wheeler dealer and ruthless in her dealings with people. She was fierce. And then when the cast realized they were expected to perform on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, one or the other, and they couldn't believe that that was a part of the contract and there were no reservations. So they were saying, since there are no reservations, couldn't we simply cancel the performance? Bryna worked her phone book and got all of these people to, um, no, please help us out. And there was a woman in the cast, I forget her name, but she was hugely connected in the Jewish community. And she said, you give me that box office list because if they're reserved, they're Jewish and they're doing it because they think they're helping us out. And I'm going to call them and tell them, really help us out. Don't, don't show up. So I went to the box office and asked if I could have the list for that day. And the box office manager um, did it with trepidations, but then blew me into Bryna and said that I had... Um, asked for the list. So Bryna fired me. I thought, oh, well, 
And then she told me the job just wasn't being done properly. And I thought, what job? Oh, Tony. We're going to hear more from him in just a minute because in 1981, we have another big event. And that big event is the first curtain up. Michael P. Pitek, who was the managing director of Studio Arena, originally designed it as a fundraiser for Studio Arena during the Main Street demolition and the construction of the rapid transit. Now, you may not know much about this, but back when they had the brilliant idea to close down Main Street and make it into a pedestrian mall, it was a mess down there. All of the theaters, all of the businesses, the storefront operations, they slowly just went underwater because it was a mess. And this is right where the spot where the subway came up and became an above ground train. So Studio Arena needed to do something to promote and say that, hey, we're still here. Come on out. So they came up with the idea of having a curtain up ceremony. Here's Tony Chase, who was too young to really enjoy it, but he'll tell you what he remembers. Keep in mind that I was a, I don't even think I was even yet a student. I didn't have two nickels to scrape together. And I had a friend visiting from England and we went downtown and it was dispersing by the time we went downtown. And there were, there were little handmade signs and sad little balloons attached to bright orange snow fence because downtown was under construction. It was the Metro Rail. The idea was to send the message that Main Street, that downtown was still open for business and that the theater was still, the theaters were still in operation. And it was sort of a publicity, the point was not fundraising, the point was publicity. We're still open for business. Now, whether or not there was a fundraising element, I wouldn't have been privy to that. I was not in that echelon of the theater world in those days. But you know who was in that echelon of the theater world in those days? Anne Moot whose husband, Wells Moot, was the president of the board of Studio Arena. Here are her delightful comments about the first curtain up. I can remember it vividly because it was a lousy night and we were sitting out in the, in the street with our boots on. Blossom, it was Blossom Cohen's idea, I think. And maybe with other people involved too. But I can remember sitting, I remember the dress I wore. It was a long dress and it had a jacket. And it was so bloody cold, I had to wear my coat over that and I had to wear boots because they said, if you're going to sit outside, it's, it's muddy and it's wet. And it's, so I wore a pair of boots and then I brought a pair of shoes around with me to wear when I went in the theater. So I wouldn't look like a complete idiot, but... But I, I was smart. Most of the people were getting their shoes all muddy and wet. It was terrible. It was terrible. She was just terrific talking about it. But clearly, it was not a gala event as it is these days, or as we hope it will be again after the pandemic. But now we continue on with the timeline to something that is near and dear to my heart, 1981. The Cavanoke Theater opens under the direction of Professor David Lamb. I asked David about his return to Duville College and the restoration of what was once called the auditorium. At the end of that summer, I get a telephone call. I remember we had a little kitchen there. It was in the corner there. And I get a call from Sister R. Patricia Smith saying, I've been trying to get hold of you all summer. She said, we have an opening in the English department, and I have to offer it to you. Do you want it? I said, no, because 
if I come back there, it is with one intention only, and that's to uh, start a theater company. And it, that means restoring the theater. She said, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, in that case, I had no interest in any job. But are you sure? I'll come back as long as you give me leeway to try to get the money to restore the theater. I said, do what you like. So I went back there to teach English. The Kavanoki began as stage center across the street in the dining room until the theater happened. But we had to give that name up when Saul took over the Pfeiffer, or it was called the Center Theater. So that's how we started off in 1973. It took, what, six years, seven years of browbeating, and finally uh, Ed Kavanoki, who was the chair of the board, he was also a Broadway angel. He led the campaign, and they got the money, and they restored the theater. So David returned to Dewville College sort of reluctantly because he really wanted to open up a theater and he wasn't quite sure whether they were going to buy into it. I asked him for his idea. What was he trying to do in setting up a theater at the Kavanoke space? Here's what he said. I said, look, we opened the theater, but it has to be a professional company. And this is where the idea for the Kavanoke came in, which was all mine. As I say, the restoration part of it wasn't, but it was Jerry uh, McConey's. But the idea for the Kavanoke was that Studio Arena were hiring out of town, and local actors, other than myself, were not getting cast. And I think I was uh, being cast because of my accent. So I met a lot of people while I was doing shows there, and specifically in the backstage area, as well as some actors. I said, if we put together a company of local people, now that doesn't mean I'm going to hire the company all locally, because I know all these people from Studio Arena, get them to stay in town, you know, and they come to the studio to do a show, maybe they'll stay for another six months or four months or to do a show. So we have to pay them. The school had to know that this was not going to be a student-oriented uh, operation, that it was going to make money, and uh, that I wanted a 501c3 right away because of raising funds. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly was put on the New York State Council of the Arts as a local representative. And what I learned there, you know, of how you get money and all of this sort of thing, you know, it would have been much easier with an independent 501c3. But they wouldn't go along. They had to retain control. So... I go along with that mistake, but I went along with it. I said, but it has to be, you know, fully operational theater, paying people and run independently of the student academic program. And, and it worked. We got some really good people in there. And so, contrary to what Mr. Barlow told Tony Chase, the idea for the Kavanoke was solely David Lamb's, and he was the sole founder of the theater. So I asked David, well, who was most helpful to you? Who were the most helpful parties in getting the Kavanoke Theater off the ground? This is what he said. 
I think they were friends from the faculty. And, of course, the actors, you know, I mean, who, who wanted to work. I'd met so many people. People, I mean, Lynn Kurzil and, and oh, Jim, Jim Diot. Jim, they, they, Jim Di- and Diot was really helpful when we first started because I directed for him at St. Joe's, mm-hmm. and their music, and that's where I met Lynn because she was doing the choreography. But their own future was involved. But it was the people who gave the money to the restoration, and they were French. I mean, the Abanos, super helpful. Uh, And then Jan did all of our posters. Uh, They were really helpful. And Ed Kavanaugh, I didn't see much of him at all. He was very much laid back. I think the Wizbaums were very, very helpful in the early stage. All right, and with an endeavor like this, there are always obstacles to overcome. There are always problems. There are always things that step in the middle and get in the way. Tell us about those, David. The biggest obstacles were people not understanding theater and what it involved. The administration of of the college, we we had a a CEO who, uh, when I asked for a communication system to the booth, from the booth Mm -hmm. to the stage, Ask me, why can't you flash uh, a flashlight, you know, from the stage up to the booth? This sort of ignorance, you know, uh, people who were against theatre, basically, uh, and they were establishmentarians, you know. I think those were the biggest obstacles. And yes, you can hear me murmuring in the background there, because I actually did that interview live with David at his home. So I had to ask him, the fortunes at the Cavanoki sort of declined through the years. It has always remained arguably one of the best theaters in town. However, things began to slowly change, financial troubles, problems with the administration. I asked David if he could sum it up. It all went to the dogs when so many theaters started, and I have nothing against the other theaters, don't get me wrong. It's just the numbers don't add up. And so we had this vibrant curtain up party, which Kavanoki started with, uh, what's his name? He didn't have any money. And so I said, just take the set from here. And he, he, he built sort of basically a, a grandstand in the middle of the street mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the first curtain up, uh, Michael Pitek. Mm-hmm. And that started that off. And, and all of these theaters grew up you know, uh, around it, but they were all competing for the same people. When plenty of money is coming in, it's easy to make up for mistakes. When uh, things, purse strings get very, very tight, it was difficult during the 90s. And we were not going to do four musicals a year, you know. Uh, And I think it's probably one of the reasons that, I mean, the final meeting I had, was with our boss, who knew nothing about theatre, telling me that we were going to be doing uh, at least two musicals and probably three. And I said, no, we're not. You know, That was the last meeting I was ever invited to. So did you catch that comment about the first curtain up where they used part of a Kavanoki set as part of the street decorations, I guess? Then finally I had to ask David about how he looks back on his past accomplishments his legacy, so to speak, and he was reluctant to talk about a legacy, but I think he makes some very interesting points. I think my one good idea resulted in a theater community in Buffalo. 
And I think if I hadn't been here, I don't know if it would have happened. There were the Radices and the Dudziks and that sort of thing going around at the same sort of time, and the Saul Elkin eventually yes. left teaching. Or I think they all came out of that first surge in the 70s, when we were all much younger. <laughs> but I don't know whether we would have got the O'Neills in and, and we'd kept the, the, the good actors together for a period of time that established there is a life in theatre. There, there was a market for it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, there, there was the ability for the people who have come to town who stayed here to act and that sort of thing, and, and there have been a number of them. I think we've attracted people as well as having grown people. And I'm not sure you can argue with that. The Cavanoke was the first, and I think from that proof that small professional theater could work, could be financially successful, could be artistically successful, a lot of other small professional theaters got the idea that, hey, I can do it too. Here's Tony Chase for some final words on David Lamb and the Cavanoke. Well, David was um, was the first serious um, contender for a major resident theater of professional quality. Without David, there is no Irish Classical Theater Company. David is, in many ways, responsible for the demise of Studio Arena Theater. Tragic for the city, but he taught theater practitioners across the region that they could create their own theaters. And they learned. I think Neil Raddis, also, who also was employed at Studio Arena Theater for a period of time, figured it out, but he was a f among the first of that generation of people. And he kind of um, had his go-to people, almost an ensemble, almost a very British repertory company there, where he had cultivated the talents of this core of people that included Anne Gailey, that included Eileen Dugan, who were very, very talented people and could have been competitive in any market, including New York City. David had the benefits of the college, sometimes supporting him, sometimes thwarting him, a base of stability, a model that Summer Fair, then Musical Fair, learned that with the stability of that institution to keep certain processes running, and that was smart. He hit the moment and, and certainly made a mark and was enormous in con contributing to professional standards uh, in the theater community. But in his time and at his moment, he was king of the hill. So that's the David Lamb story. That's the story of the founding of the Cavanoke Theater. We leave them behind for now and move on to 1981, when a refurbished Lancaster Opera House reopens as a presenting house, bringing in concerts and a number of local and community theater productions. 1982, Erica Wall opens Cabaret 650, which was the first of three spaces she operated at various times. This one was at 650 Main Street, right in the heart of the theater district. It served as a home base for the Buffalo Performance Company, an odd mix of theater, performance art, and music of all kinds, until the building was sold from under them. Here's Tony Chase to talk a little bit about Erica Wohl. When I came to town, and I was working at the Playhouse for Joe and Bryna Weiss. But Liz Hiller told me, because I said, I don't think anything's happening here at the Playhouse. And she said, you know, 
the up and coming people are not our generation. They're these younger people, <laughs> younger people. We were younger. And she said, Erica Wall, Erica, she's got this place. In those days, you could rent a Main Street storefront for free, just practically for free. And so Erica had this storefront property on, on Main Street. And then she got, then she got that whole building, in, which is now the Darcy McGee's. She had that space, the whole thing, the basement, and she did great shows there. I, I knew her well, I, you know, pretty well. And she's a local person. And I believe she's the cousin of Jack Hunter, she, that they are related. She... Um, Possessed of some demons, and I think it eventually killed her. That sad story, but boy, talented lady. And Liz Heller was right. These are up-and-coming people, and they were. And it was, it was um, thrillingly dynamic, and she knew a lot about Brecht. Endlessly creative. And then they had a fire, and then she was doing all kinds of fundraisers, which we suspected were perhaps not funding the theater. And now, if you will permit me a little self-indulgence. In 1982, veteran performers Ron Swick, Susan Mendolia Toomey, Dolores Mendolia, and me, Pete Pomisano, form RSDP Productions and bring One Night Stand Dinner Theater with sets and lights and sound delivered in one afternoon to churches, Masonic temples, and various other venues on the way to a two-week engagement at the Lancaster Opera House. And I wanted to make sure that I mentioned Dolores and Ron because they were consummate professionals who had learned on the way up through various community theaters and other small professional theaters. And it was a privilege and an honor to work and learn from both of them. 1983, the, quote, Theater Historic Preservation District, unquote, is officially created by the City of Buffalo recognizing the 600 and 700 blocks of Main Street as a distinct local historic district, which leads to access to federal historic preservation tax credits and additional incentives for redevelopment. Here's Tony Chase once again. Did they give any incentives for anybody to do anything? I, I know that Harold Cohen, there was a jewelry store storefront available. They're developing the building and there was the opportunity for a not-for-profit on the first floor. And Harold said, you know, this is the theater district. We need to be encouraging theaters. They're not doing anything. I mean, they helped the Irish Classical Theater. Um, but there's a point when Neil Raddus had to fight for the city not to sell that building that the Alleyway Theater is in. There's no real level of commitment. Politicians don't know about, care about the arts. Some are better, some are worse. Mark Polencars is pretty good. In fact, real good. And, and you know, Tony Masiello is terrific. Whatever you criticize about his leadership for the arts, that man was tops. He was good. He got it. Byron's, you know, pretty good, but there's no, you know, put your money where your mouth is and, you know, kind of support it. You know, good intentions. And, you know, every time you go to politicians, and you show them the statistics for the economic impact of the theaters and of the arts, they just glaze right over. When you tell them that the arts are having a larger impact than sports, they don't believe you. And now on the timeline, I have to tell you that I have arbitrarily chosen this moment to put in a little bit of a discussion about community theater between myself and Tony Chase. We had a very interesting discussion about it. And I have to be honest with you, I had to Wikipedia community theater because even though that's where I got my start, 
I really didn't know much about how it got its start. So I looked it up, and somewhere between 1910 and 1985, there was a community theater movement in the U.S. And the roots of community theater can be traced to the quote-unquote little theater movement that started in the 1910s. Now, during this period, many of Europe's finest independent theaters began touring the United States. And amazingly, in the city and the suburbs, over 100 community theaters were founded in America just during the 20 years after World War I alone. Now, around here, there were many, many well-known community theaters and many, many well-known actors who are your favorites now on the small professional stage, still working in Buffalo, came out of the community theater movement. I'm just going to list them, the ones that I know about, in alphabetical order and try not to miss anybody. But if I did miss anybody, somebody will let me know. We have the Amherst Players, who I think are still operational. There was Appletown Players that became the Cheektowaga Town Players. I don't think they're around anymore. The Aurora Players, of course, still a very strong community theater group, still performing there out in Hamlin Park in East Aurora. The Cheektowaga Civic Theater. Hamburg Little Theater, which is of particular importance to me. I was a member there for many years. That's really where I got my start. I was the president there for several years. The Lackawanna Civic Theater, founded in 1961 by Matthew Oreskovich. He was an accomplished actor and director. He was in a class with John Voigt at Catholic University. I don't think they are still operational. Now, the Lancaster Regional Players, established in 1964, they used to operate out of the Lancaster Opera House, but when Lancaster decided they were going to be a producing house instead of just a presenting house, the Lancaster Players, the Regional Players, were sort of left out in the cold, but I believe they're still operating out of another venue. Then there was the Niagara Regional Theater Guild. That was established in 1923 as the Niagara Falls Little Theater. That's the oldest in western New York. I think they may be defunct. The Palace Theater in Lockport is still very active. Several friends of mine still perform there. The Springville Players are still active. Stage Struck Productions, they became Rocking Horse Productions. Now, I think they were also at the Lancaster Opera House, and they, too, may be performing at a different venue. There's Starry Night Theater at the Ghost Light Theater. I'm not sure where they are or if they're still operational. The Taylor Theater at the Keenan Arena in Lockport. They were originally the Carriage House Players. There's Theater in the Mist, which I believe is in Niagara Falls, and they're probably still operational. There's Tonawanda Town Players, Way Off Broadway Company, and the West Seneca Players rounds it out. I told you which ones I think are still active, and I told you which ones I think have become defunct. Unfortunately, I'm doing most of my research and my Zooming in my interviews during a pandemic, so it's hard to make contact or to even know where to look first because nobody was producing anything and no websites were active or at least been updated since 2020. So I sat down with Tony Chase to talk about the value of community theater, particularly the value here in Western New York and how they may have contributed to the history of theater in Buffalo. We should talk about community theater a little bit. 
I'm not the best source. That's okay. It's a discussion. And I, I, I of course, have a soft spot in my head for uh, community theater. And I was surprised to hear that a lot of people do. You know, that Neil Raddus, for example, talks about how his career sort of paralleled Buffalo's, Buffalo's theater growth sort of paralleled his own, which was that it started with community theater and then moved up to dinner theater and then moved up to small professional. And a lot of people had started in community theater. And of course, it's always a, a sore spot with me when, you know, we were all out doing community theater for free, just for the pure love of it. And I was always a sponge. I would just, whatever anybody, because I was just le learning on the fly, as you know about me. And I could not believe that the, now we had this people, these people here who worked for nothing and the joy and the glory of, of theater and the love of theater, as you talked about, you know, you and Javier being passionate. These people just loved what they were doing. And then they would go off and work for $10 at uh, the Playhouse or wherever, because now they were professional and they were getting reviewed. And, and it was a, a sore spot, you know, that it, the community theater didn't get the respect. I wouldn't say that it deserved, but the respect that it <laughs> desperately wanted so badly to achieve. Well, those were the shoulders. Those were the shoulders of giants on which these small, air quote, professional theaters were standing. That, mm -hmm. that, and there are still are important community theaters in this region. Aurora Players is among the most yes. robust, but Amherst Players, Ghost Light, um, these are important across the country. And the little theater movement of the 1920s grows out of these community theaters, and they are important to their communities. And I think that, yes, they have also, it's not their purpose. They don't exist to develop talent for small professional theaters, but mm -hmm. that is one of the benefits. They, yeah. have, they have done it. And there are people who go back and forth. They think of Jessica Rasp, who frequently directs, gets great parts at, at Aurora Players, comes back in, directs, stage managers in the city, goes back and forth comfortably between the two, values both, understands the importance of that little pavilion, that theater, their history on the wall, what they've meant to that community, what they still mean to that community. Yeah. They raised the price of the cookies, by the way. But, <sighs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Just, and I, I remember vividly the, the, the meticulous detail of productions that I've seen there. I've not seen a ton of work there. I don't go there every season. But the burst of energy and the importance to their audience that you feel, that is the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, too, when you see certain, if you go to Ujima, the importance to the audience. If you go to BUA, the importance to the audience. When you go to the big subscription shows, if you go to, if you go to Shays, it's entertainment. They're looking to be wowed that they, Studio Arena lost that feeling of belonging of ownership, that of family, of investment, of you know, treating the community theater actors like you're a star for a night, and saying, you know, your mother's saying with total sincerity that this is this is better than Broadway, and believing it, mm -hmm. because the euphoria of the moment is better. It's more, it's, you know, the lights are shining brighter. That the, that the the degree of empathy with what's happening on the stage is as powerful as in any theater in the world. It's not it's not that professional quality that makes that. That's not the essence of the theatrical experience. Mm -hmm. It is the power of that empathy that just requires good storytelling. And if, if the audience is able to invest in that story, and sometimes the impulse to do it is stronger at community theater than it would be at professional theater. Mm -hmm. Nobody leaves community theater saying that sucks. Yeah. They leave saying you were wonderful. 
and they believe it. Yeah. Then the dedication of the people behind the scenes, even people who don't even get to be on stage, right, and who will never get their name in the no. paper. I mean, I learned about building, how to build sets and how to build, right. how to focus right. lights and everything from these people. Well, remember, most of theater history is that. It's not Broadway. Broadway is a little fingernail on the body of, of, of theater history that if you go back to the Greeks, it's community theater. Mm-hmm. It was paid for by the city. It was local community theater actors. The chances are, if you were young enough, you're watching something that you aspired to do if you were a man. Or you were in it. Mm-hmm. Or you were watching younger people do something you had done that you knew the people. The city was not that big that you would have known somebody in the show. And, you know, it's the whole town going to the theater. And the other, the most amazing moment of community theater in the history of the world is those medieval Corpus Christi plays where the whole town would close down and they would do the entire Bible in little plays that were sometimes comical, that would always end with the crucifixion and the resurrection, that would always begin with Adam and Eve. And they'd be locally written and locally produced Mm -hmm. and locally acted and entirely community theater and... 20 different guys would get to play Jesus, and they would talk about investing in the special effects. They would go all out. Yeah. That you know, record of a production of Noah's Ark where they did in a little square where, they, where the, the Coopers, the barrel makers, were in charge of the special effect, and they put barrels of water all around the top, so at the critical moment of the flood, they poured the water down out. Yes. All kinds of innovative ways to produce them, and it was whole towns. That is the majority of the history of the theater. Now, you've mentioned a couple times, though, about the 1920s, the, the little theater movement of the 1920s. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that, where that came from, or what was the... Uh, well, it, they grew out of community theaters across the country, and they grew out of... There, there was the road, touring shows, which in those days, there's vaudeville, mm-hmm. which is largely mindless, and they didn't value it as an art the way we do now. We look back and go, oh, those geniuses of vaudeville. But there were things in vaudeville. Judy Garland talks about being... She was with the Gum Sisters, and she toured a sister act, and it had everything. It had jugglers, it had dog acts, it had animal acts of every kind. It had um, acrobats, it had scenes, it had Sarah you know, Bernhardt, you know, people would know the short plays, co- comedians... So the advent of community theater is is that they're looking at the commercial product and they're saying that um, what tours tends to be Floridora, and they feel that the people across the country, um, particularly at a period of time, remember the era of A. R. Gurney and um, and it's the 1920s and and money is burnable and there is a rising upper middle class and they have every kind of pretension and they're beginning to send their kids to college and they feel that they deserve serious theatrical experiences they feel that they deserve philharmonic orchestras this is the same period of time when we you know we're going to contemplate building Kleinan's music hall we're going to have um, sustained symphony orchestras for cities across the country it's not just new york it's not just chicago it's not just la every Every city in the country that aspires to be a city deserves a serious theater. And so these little theaters spring up all across the country. And this is the era of Eugene O'Neill on Cape Cod in Provincetown, you know, that, 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 that a little serious theater. And they happen all across the country, and they are professional. And they will evolve into the resident regional theater movement and the Lord movement. So that's the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. By the 1950s, they begin to get government funding, and the better ones become... Um, and you get the Cleveland Playhouse, you get the Arena Stage, you get the Hartford Stage, you get the Goodman Theater, you get these theaters growing out of the, the little theater movement, and you get the Studio Theater in Buffalo. 
And so as they begin to get um, government subsidy, they begin to get even larger. And this will be their death for many of them, because they will build infrastructures that are only sustainable with subsidy. And they will not learn to readjust, because for a lot of them, production qualities are synonymous with theatrical quality, which any community theater can tell you is not true. Mm -hmm. That that is not what is making the empathy with the audience. And so if you maintain a large enough population, you can be, it is sustainable even without that level of subsidy. But if you cannot, you'll go out of business. Studio Arena Theater becomes, you know, grows out of the little theater movement as this Cleveland Playhouse. They become a, a Lord Theater, resident regional theater. 1960 was at four. They, Neil Dubrock, they go equity, which squeezes these other people out. Well, they do exactly what Jane Keeler and Lars Potter did. They found their own. They become Erica Wool. They become Gary Fisher Dawson. They become David Lamb. They they become what Brian Weiss tries to do with, with Irv Weinstein yeah, yeah. At, at the Playhouse. That's the little theater movement all over again. So, you know, that's what that was. And that's what it evolved into. And when government subsidy goes away, that's when some of those stumble and falter. So your point is it branches off from vaudeville because they want something more legitimate. Their town deserves... And the road, yeah. It deserves a better, a better class of theater. Right. And then there's somebody in every town. Maybe it's a professor from uh, the local university or something. Often, often. And they would start some kind of a community theater. And, and from there, then we get into the, the Lort and so on. Right, and in this town, even Marion DeForest, because the Buffalo players precede the Buffalo Studio Theater. Right. And they're, they were a community theater. They are a community theater. Yeah. And there you are. As mentioned earlier on in these podcasts in an earlier episode, the Buffalo Players were a community theater that preceded and was the direct ancestor of the beloved Lort Regional Theater Studio Arena. And we are going to leave it there on our timeline. And when we pick up again in the next episode, episode six, we will be right into the modern age of expansion from 1981 to 1999, We are going to continue with 1983. So I hope you will join us in the next episode in a couple of weeks. Episode 6, where we continue along and also include a discussion about dinner theater. Similar to the discussion we had this time about community theater, I thought it was time to talk about dinner theater because we've got Jay Desiderio coming up and John Samazi coming up, both kings of the dinner theater format. And if you're enjoying this, please subscribe on Podbean or on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, everybody subscribe. I hope to see you here in a couple of weeks as we continue with A History of Buffalo Theater. But until then, this has been RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano.